are starting a sermon series this morning in Proverbs, where we're going to be for the next uh, five months, five months here in Proverbs. Let's take a moment to, to pray together. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, um, you beckon us, you invite us to ask for wisdom And so as we open this book to explore it Sunday after Sunday for the next five months, we pray that you would give us hearts that are open, minds that are open, hands that are open to receive that which you want to give us. We pray that as we do that, that you would would make us a wise people who walk according to the wisdom of your ways and who therefore faithfully represent you to a world in need of wisdom. Lord, we need wisdom ourselves. We're foolish, we're weak, we're simpletons, apart from any wisdom that you give us. So please give us postures of humility and reception before you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was around 16 years ago that I had my my first exposure to the book of Proverbs and I'll never forget it. Um, some of you know about my past and, and before my conversion, so it won't come as a surprise to some of you that 16 years ago, I found myself in the Greene County Adult Detention Center uh, looking at being there for up to 40 days. Uh, I had ended up there just due to a series of uh, doltish decisions. Uh, I was a fool. I really was. And, and And I came to that startling realization that I was a fool when I arrived there at my bunk, just sitting, looking at 40 days in jail due to just a series of stupid decisions that I had made in that previous year. It it all came crashing down on my conscience that in that moment, that I was a fool, an imbecile, a a simpleton. It couldn't have been more clear to me in that moment. And it was at that time that I remembered some some words from my father that he seemed to just drill into our heads growing up. He used to tell us wisdom should be our number one prayer request. Wisdom should be our number one prayer request. And and at the time of his saying, uh, of course, it went in one ear and right out the other again. Um, I, I mean, I was too busy having fun. I didn't pray anyways, so why start now asking for this thing that could potentially ruin all of my fun? Uh, but, but those words came to me in that moment while I was sitting there in jail looking at 40 days, and they came with a new sense of significance and importance and meaning. And I remember, uh, I, I recalled in, in some vague way my father telling us growing up about this, this King Solomon, the wise and about how he had asked God for wisdom, and, and it, was, it was given to him. And, and he told us about how the Solomon figure composed this, this, this book called Proverbs in which he passes on the wisdom he received to fools like me. And so I thought, well, I'm, I'm a fool. I don't have anything else to do for the next 40 days. Got a lot of time on my hands. There's this Bible in my bunk here. Maybe I should read Proverbs. I could really use some of this wisdom thing. And so I did. And that was actually my first interaction with the Bible and this whole series of events and interactions that eventually led to my conversion within a year uh, later. 
But it all began with the book of Proverbs there at the Greene County ADC 16 years ago. I didn't quite know then what I know now. I wasn't fully aware at the time, but I was, I was turning to the exact place I should have if I wanted to become wise. If I wanted to live a good life, if I wanted to know how to live skillfully and ethically and sensibly and judiciously and happily in the world, if I wanted to live wisely, this is the precise place I should have been looking to the wisdom of God found in his word. And that's what Proverbs is. Proverbs is God's gift to fools who would become wise. Proverbs is God's gift to his children so that he might equip us to live life well. Now, I know at times we might tend to maybe view God and his word and the Christian faith as, as only being relevant to matters such as our forgiveness and salvation and eternal life, which are all obviously central and crucial matters for us as Christians, and this all relates to that. But unfortunately, some of us might at times fail to see God and his word as, be, as being particularly relevant to a life well lived, right? To, to our living skillfully and sensibly. Sometimes some of us, you know, we might look to the Christian faith for our forgiveness and salvation, for assurance of, of eternal life, but then we might look to Jordan Peterson or Brene Brown or Jocko Willink or Glennon Doyle for wisdom, for a life well lived, for how to navigate this world skillfully. And, and hear me, folks like that, they might have something helpful to say to us. Now, the Bible's it's not afraid of wisdom and truth wherever it's, fact, it, wherever it's found. In fact, some portions of the book of Proverbs uh, are actually borrowing wisdom from Assyrian and Egyptian sources. Uh, all truth is God's truth, as St. Augustine has said. And, and so we shouldn't be afraid to appropriate wisdom wherever we find it, and yet the primary place we, we ought to be looking, if we want to grow in wisdom, if we want to learn how to navigate well, if we want to live life skillfully and sensibly, the primary place we ought to be looking is to the God who designed this world and whose wisdom knows no bounds. And that's what we plan on doing for the next five months, looking at God's wise instruction for foolish and weak people like me, found here in the book of Proverbs. Now, we're going to start... In the beginning of Proverbs, uh, this morning, with Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with joy, let's listen with reverence, let's listen with relish to the word of our God as he seeks to equip us with wisdom. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, as we get into the book of Proverbs, you'll need to know what kind of book this is. Proverbs 
belongs to a category of biblical books that we call wisdom literature. Uh, A few years ago, we worked our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, along with the book of Job and a few of the Psalms, are all considered Old Testament wisdom literature. And the purpose of, of wisdom literature is to show us something of how this world works and equip us to live well within it. And of course, if, if you read the three main wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, you, you'll likely notice how different these books actually are from one another. They, they seem to come from wildly different perspectives on life and how the world works and all of it. And so the book of Proverbs, you know, it, it seems to kind of operate under the assumption that if you live life well, if you make good and wise choices, if you live a life of integrity, that things will work out well for you, right? It, it, things will, just for example, there are, there are numerous Proverbs that speak to having a good work ethic, to working hard and diligently in your job. And, and many of them seem to operate under this assumption that if you work hard, you'll have plenty and not poverty, right? That if you work diligently, your needs will be met and you won't be in want. So one, for example, is Proverbs 13, 4. It says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Here's what that's saying. Work hard, be well supplied. Don't, and you won't be. And normally in life, that's true, isn't it? Right? It, people who work hard and make good choices generally have their needs provided for, and those who don't normally don't. Ordinarily, that's true, and Proverbs wants us to see that. However, anyone who has eyes can see that that's not always the case, right? That, that there are exceptions to that rule, that sometimes a person might very well work hard and diligently and live a life of integrity, and for some reason or another, things just never actually work out for them. Or, or because of some tragedy, they lose everything. Well, Job and Ecclesiastes are going to talk about those kinds of exceptions in life. Ecclesiastes is going to take a more cynical look at the way this world works and, and, and show how working hard is, is good. It's good as far as it goes, but it's actually no guarantee for a good life because whatever you gain through work can just as easily be taken away. And Ecclesiastes will also show us that work is actually empty if you look to it for ultimate fulfillment. And so it, along with Proverbs, I mean, it has a message we need to hear. Both of these messages, both of these words are true. And then Job, likewise, is going to look at the reality that you can live a good, wise life, and yet in God's mysterious providence, things can go horribly wrong in your life. Tragedy can strike and take everything away from you but it also shows us that you can still trust God in the midst of tragedy and disaster. You see, Job and Ecclesiastes speak to these kinds of exceptions, while Proverbs usually speaks to the rule, to the way things ordinarily go in life. And so sometimes, guys, Proverbs might seem a bit overly simplistic to some of us. It will tell us things like Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. In other words, raise your children to be godly and faithful to the Lord, and when they grow old, they will be. That's generally a true statement. And yet some of you will hear that and go, yeah, I can think of some exceptions. Now, some of you are thinking of maybe one or two examples when you've seen that to not be the case right now. But, but one of the things you'll probably hear me say over the next five months quite a bit is this. We'll let Ecclesiastes and Job speak to those exceptions. Right? To, to some of the 
to some of the complexities that Proverbs doesn't necessarily address. And we'll let Proverbs simply speak its own message to us. Because, because ordinarily, usually, if you train a child up in the way that he should go, he won't depart from it. So you should train your children up in the way that they should go if you're a parent. It's not an absolute promise, but it is usually true. Now with that, Proverbs has a particular structure to it. You can see the outline uh, here on the screen. We can put that up. So here's, here's the like, kind of more detailed outline of Proverbs, but, but maybe if, if, if we just simplify it a little bit, we're going to simplify it a little bit, and, and, and if we do that, we'll see that Proverbs actually has two main sections, two main sections. There's Proverbs 1 through 9, which serves as this continuous monologue uh, from a father to his son, calling him, beckoning him to this life of wisdom and to shun a life of foolishness. And we're going to spend the next 11 Sundays actually just walking through, sequentially walking through uh, these chapters, just as we normally do in a series like this. But then after that, there's, there's Proverbs 10 through 31. You can see that, kind of the, the rest of that there, which is a bit more uh, proverbial, right? Uh, it's more of what you think of when you think of the book of Proverbs because it mainly contains a kind of spattering of Proverbs that speak to a a plethora of different subjects. There's just a ton of poetic, bite-sized sayings that all communicate a whole world of wisdom. And so when we come to the end of Proverbs 9, we plan on preaching that section a bit more thematically. So at that time, we'll spend each Sunday looking at Proverbs in chapters 10 through 31 based on particular themes and subjects. We'll look at what Proverbs has to say about our speech and our work and our finances and our marriages and our parenting and various other sorts of themes like that, just looking at what all of these various Proverbs might say about those themes across this book. But before we get there, we're starting where the book of Proverbs starts this morning. We're starting in Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. And the beginning of Proverbs here shows us something of where we must begin if indeed we're going to obtain this this precious treasure called wisdom. Our big idea this morning is this, that all who would be wise must begin here. And our outline shows us where we must begin with wisdom's person, wisdom's proficiency, and wisdom's posture. First, look at me at wisdom's person. Uh, You know, so with the different types of of literature we find in the Old Testament. We also have different types of authors and leadership roles found within the people of Israel at that time. So, of course, if we know even a little bit about the Old Testament, we'll know something about the leadership roles of the prophets and the priests and the kings. Those are these, these kind of leadership offices and roles that were very important to the people of God in the Old Testament. They're very important for us today as we think about our doctrine of Christ but there's another leadership role we might not think about as much. And, and sometimes there's, there's this group at times that's simply called the wise. Uh, sometimes people today might call them the sage. But the Bible will, will often call them the wise. Jeremiah 18.18 18 is an example that speaks to this when it says this. The law shall not perish from the priest, nor the counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. You can kind of see here this, this other category of leadership in Israel here referred to as the wise. And it's the wise that we credit for the book of Proverbs. 
And of course, there's one name among the wise that perhaps stands out above them all in the Bible, and particularly here in the book of Proverbs, and he's named here in verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now, as you might have noticed from the outline on the screen that we had on a few moments ago, Solomon is, is certainly not the sole author of the book of Proverbs, right? There were other names on there like Lemuel and Agur and various sayings from a group of people just called the wise. So there are, there are other contributors to the book of Proverbs, and yet, as some have said, Solomon, uh, maybe we'll call him the principal author of the book of Proverbs. Uh, as Daniel Trier says about this, he, he says that Solomon is surely not the author of each proverb. He nevertheless is the hub of their creation and collection, right? Uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 9 and 10 shows us something of, of this. And, and when it speaks about King Solomon in this way, saying, besides being wise, the preacher, that's Solomon, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. As we come to this book, we find many of those words. We find many proverbs, many of them penned by Solomon himself, and many of those that he weighed and studied and arranged and collected with great care. And of course, if, if you know something of Solomon's story, you'll know that he was uniquely qualified by God to compose a book of wisdom such as this, right? So as Solomon says here, he's the son of David, and he's the son of David who inherited the throne of Israel from his father. He was the king after David. And, and early on in the book of 1 Kings, we find the story of Solomon entering into his reign as king. And so the reign of King David has come to an end, and it was a good reign. Uh, David, he messed up. Sometimes he royally messed up, but he wasn't perfect, but he was a good king. He led God's people into times of flourishing and justice and peace like never before. But now his reign has come to an end. So Solomon is beginning his reign, and, and there's so much uncertainty, right? Solomon is new. Solomon is young. Who knows what kind of king he's going to be? And at the beginning of 1 Kings 3, we see something of how, uh, it speaks of something of how Solomon is a good man, right? He, he, again, he's like his father David. He's not perfect. He's made some unlawful sacrifices, we see. But verse 3 also says that Solomon loved the Lord, and he walked in the statutes of his father David. And so in this chapter, we, we learn of one night in which the Lord came to Solomon in a dream. And in this dream, the Lord says to Solomon, ask what I shall give you. In other words, he essentially writes him a blank check. He, our lavishly generous God came to Solomon. And he said, I, I love to give my children good gifts. I want to give you a good gift. Ask me for something. What do you want? And to this Solomon replies, listen to what he says. He says, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. Because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you, and you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O oh Lord, my God, you've made, you've made your servant, you've made me king in place of my father David. Although I am but a little child. He says, I'm, I'm young, I'm, I'm dumb, I don't know anything. I don't know how to go out or come in. And you want me to govern this, your great people? This, he says, 
Your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? So you see, Solomon asked for wisdom. The Lord wrote him a, a blank check. What do you want? I'll give it to you. And Solomon didn't ask for riches or for long life or for the life of his enemies. He didn't ask for a beautiful spouse. He asked for wisdom. And the story goes on saying that it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God says to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none shall have been like you before you and none shall arise like you after. And so the Lord granted Solomon wisdom. And oh my goodness, what wisdom he gave to Solomon. It's incredible. Solomon was so wise that people came from all around the known world at the time in order to witness his great wisdom. The Queen of Sheba is, is, is uh, one remarkable uh, visitation. No slouch herself, right? She came to Solomon in 1 Kings 10 in order to witness his wisdom and understanding. And she concluded in 1 Kings 10, 6 and 7 that the report was true of what she had heard in her own land about Solomon's words and wisdom. She said that she had not believed the reports until she came and saw with her own eyes. But she says, I didn't even know the half of it. She says to Solomon, your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the reports I'd even heard. His wisdom was astounding. 1 Kings 4.29 says that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people in the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. This is so interesting. He spoke of trees. He, was so, he knew a ton about trees. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. All people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon was brilliant. He knew a lot about a lot. He was knowledgeable. He was skillful. He was wise. But even still, friends, he is not the person of wisdom that this point is now referring to. Solomon was wise, but where did his wisdom, where do you think his wisdom came from? He was wise, but there is one who is wiser still and one from whom Solomon received his wisdom. And if there is one from whom Solomon the wise received his wisdom, well, then how wise must he be? You see, friends, the, the, the person of wisdom is God himself. God is the source and summit of wisdom. Wisdom. It's, wisdom is an attribute of God. So even more, the, the doctrine of divine simplicity would tell us that, that God's attributes are actually identical with his being, which means that God doesn't merely possess wisdom, God is wisdom. 
God is knowledge. There's not some standard of wisdom outside of God against which we measure him. He is the standard. He is wisdom's final definition, and thus he is the source of any and all wisdom and knowledge in this world. The Apostle Paul worshiped God because of this very reality in Romans 11.33. When he just bursts out in doxology saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Isaiah 40.28 says that the Lord, he's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah 28, 29 says that he is excellent in wisdom. God is wisdom's person. He is wisdom itself. Jesus, our Savior, is wisdom incarnate. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Christ has become to us wisdom from God. Colossians 2.3 tells us that in Christ we find hidden All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is this this divine treasure chest. In him, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are housed and to be found. The true son of David, Jesus the Christ. God is wisdom. And so here's the point with all this, friends. If you would be wise, you know where to look. If you would be wise, look to wisdom himself. The, the, the example of Solomon's wisdom here, it's like flashing arrow lights, just pointing at our maker and father. Solomon's wisdom is beckoning us to run to wisdom himself if indeed we would be wise. And we're exhorted to do this very thing in multiple places in the Bible. In the book of James, which is kind of like the New Testament book of Proverbs, He gives us this instruction in James 1.5 where he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Friends, if there's a prayer we know God loves to answer, it's that prayer. If you want wisdom, God delights in giving it to his children. So just ask. Pray, according to Proverbs 2.3, which will go on to tell us, call out for insight. Raise your voice for understanding. Verse 6 tells us that God will answer, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And so with that, friends, I would encourage you, among the, the things that you pray for daily, as you pray for daily provision, as you pray for your family, as you confess your sins and ask for forgiveness, as you pray for the salvation of your children and family members, you're one. As you pray for all of the things you pray for on a daily basis, make sure this is one of them. Pray for wisdom. Call out, ask God for wisdom. Call out for it and he will give it to you. He will make you wise and understanding. He will equip you to live well. All who would be wise must begin here with wisdom's person. But next, consider with me wisdom's proficiency. And here we turn to verses 2 through 6, which act as a a kind of purpose statement for the book of Proverbs. If you want to know why Proverbs was written, this is it. To know wisdom and instruction, 
to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, and righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. In short, Proverbs has been written and collected and edited in order to equip readers to become wise. This book has been given so that God's people would be a wise people. Now, that, that just begs the question, what does it mean to be wise? And, of, of course, all these verses kind of tease that out a bit and provide something of a more fully-orbed picture of what it means to be wise. But to start with the word itself, this word translated as wisdom is an interesting word. It's the word chokmah. Chokmah. And it's, it's used in several different places throughout the Old Testament and relates to a variety of subjects. But if we were to define it succinctly, we might say that chokmah means to have a certain skillfulness. It means to possess a high level of proficiency, to be competent, skillful, to, to excel in expertise. And in fact, this, this exact Hebrew word is used in Exodus 28.3 to talk about the skillfulness of those who designed and dyed and wove and sewed the garments for the priests in the temple. It says they had chokmah and their ability to make beautiful clothing. They were skillful in their craft. The same word is, is used again to talk about a man named Bezalel in Exodus 31, 1 through 5. As the Lord was there giving instructions for how to build certain of the furniture in the tabernacle, he tells him to find this man named Bezalel, and it says that Bezalel had chokmah in his workmanship, in his stonemasonry, in forging metals and building things. He had chokmah. He, he possessed a certain skillfulness. I wonder if you've ever just marveled at, at someone who is like something of a master at their craft, right? Sometimes you just, you go to a coffee shop and you order a latte, and this barista produces this thing that tastes incredible, and it's topped with this beautiful, flawless latte art. You might think of maybe like a, a beautiful dining room table that a carpenter might make in a shop. You're just amazed at how wonderfully this, this table has been crafted, how beautiful it is. Maybe you've watched like a YouTube video or something of a mechanic restoring a a classic car taking some rusty hunk of junk and making it into something beautiful that runs like a dream. If you've ever watched a teacher, an, an seemingly impossible feat, right, captivate the attention of a group of elementary students talking about fractions. <laughs> when we witness a skill like that, we're witnessing chokmah. Proverbs is, is, is seeking to help us possess that kind of thing, but not just in a particular trade or job or employment. Proverbs is trying to give us chokmah for life. Proverbs is trying to help us become equipped to become skillful, to be excellent, to be proficient in all of life, spiritually, emotionally, morally, relationally, in our speech, in our marriages, in our parenting in our jobs, in our recreation, 
in our politics, in our friendships, in our consumption of food and drink, in our finances. It's our God and Father who knows all things coming alongside us, putting his arm around us, and like a, like a wonderful counselor saying, hey, son, daughter, I love you. I know you can be pretty aimless and foolish in life if you're left to yourself, so I want to help you. I want to equip you to live well in every area of life. So listen up. That's, that's hokmah. But then if we think of this word as it's used here, as maybe as, as like a diamond that we're, we're holding up in the light. We're holding it before our eyes here in verses 2 to 6. Well, these verses start to kind of turn it a little bit so that we can kind of behold all of these differing facets and look at differing ways in which Hokmah works itself out in all of the different facets of life and, and shows us what wisdom is and means in all sorts of different areas. We, we start to look at Hokmah from different perspectives to get something of a more three-dimensional picture of what this word means. And the first thing we might notice with this word here, with all these various words used to describe it, is that wisdom is knowledgeable right? Wisdom is knowledgeable. So to, to talk about wisdom here, to describe wisdom here, Solomon is using words like insight and understanding and learning. And, and part of what we see in words like this is that a wise person is not ignorant, he's informed, right? He, he's sharp. A wise person, she, she's got her wits about her. Right? A wise person understands something of the way this world works and therefore something of how she must live in order to flourish within it. Of course, wisdom, it's not a detached intellectualism. Uh, 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 as one author said, wisdom, a wise person is not a stale encyclopedia of detached data, right? The knowledge of wisdom is practical. It's actionable knowledge. It's useful knowledge, which brings us next. We see that wisdom is virtuous. Wisdom is virtuous. Notice, at least in verse 3 here, words like righteousness, justice, equity are used. These words show us that wisdom entails a kind of ethical excellence. A wise person lives an upright life. A wise person lives a life of fairness toward others. He gives others their due. He treats others fairly. He does what's right. A wise person, he doesn't cheat on his spouse. A wise person, she doesn't use her words to lie and deceive. A wise person, she doesn't cheat on her taxes. A wise person doesn't live outside of God's design for marriage or sex. In other words, part of living a skillful life means that we look at how God created us to live and flourish in terms of ethics and then seeks to conform oneself to that design, to live within the moral boundaries God has created for us to live in knowing that it's in those boundaries that we actually find freedom and flourishing. And just like uh, Tim Keller once illustrated, it's like a goldfish. You know, goldfish is, is in this water, and, and, and it's living within the boundaries of this water, and there it flourishes. You take the goldfish out of the water, it's not going to flourish anymore. It needs to be within the proper boundaries of the water. And so, in living within God's moral boundaries, a wise person flourishes. But then in addition to the intellectual and ethical aspects of wisdom, wisdom is also practical. 
Wisdom is practical. Notice here how words like wise dealing and prudence and guidance and discretion are used in relation to wisdom. This is maybe one of the distinguishing characteristics of the wisdom literature in the Bible. Wisdom does speak to moral issues. While it does speak to issues that are, ethically speaking, black and white, wisdom also ventures to equip us to live well within life's many gray areas. It helps us live well in the daily practical matters of life. As we read Proverbs, you'll see that, that it will speak to issues ranging from farming to lawsuits, from table manners to financial loans. It'll speak to matters such as how to choose friends well and how to choose a spouse well. It speaks to matters like these because while those kinds of matters, while those kinds of items might not have a clear black and white ethical category, they are also intimately related to building a good and flourishing life. And so our God, who cares that we live life well, seeks to equip us in the practical matters of life as well. He's seeking to make us proficient in life. The purpose of Proverbs is to to give us this kind of skill, this kind of excellence in all of life. And this goes for everyone. So notice here in verse 4 that Proverbs is meant to equip the simple and youthful. It's meant to equip the young and the dumb. Verse 5 shows that it's also meant for those who are already wise and understanding, that they can benefit as well. To the young and dumb, verse 4 says, come get wisdom. To the older and wiser and more experienced, verse 5 says, come increase in wisdom. This book is for all who would grow in wisdom. So maybe here's some application for us in light of this purpose. Read Proverbs. Read it. Recall uh, is Billy Graham who once said that every day he, he would read five psalms and one chapter of Proverbs. And he said that way he read through psalms and Proverbs every month. He said Proverbs helped him learn how to love his God as, uh, uh, with all of his heart, and Proverbs taught him how to love his neighbor as himself. Perhaps you might likewise. While we're in this series, just read a chapter of Proverbs every single day. Every day, just over the next five months, just read a chapter a day. It won't take long. And, and maybe if you read the whole chapter and you have more time, maybe you just come back to maybe one proverb or one verse that stood out to you in your reading. You just think about it for a while. Think about what it says to you about God, about yourself, about how the world works, about life. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Let it increase in you knowledge and virtue and practical wisdom. Also, come to church with an open mind. We're going to be walking through this book. Come with with a mind that's ready to receive wisdom from God's word. And notice, that's precisely the kind of posture that this text calls us to. It, It calls us to verbs like hearing and increasing and receiving. We're called to hear and increase in learning. We're called to receive instruction here. And so with that, I encourage you, come to church with an open mind over the next five months. Come to church with with an open heart, with open hands. Come ready to receive wisdom from this divinely inspired book that was written to make us wise. All who would be wise must begin here with this posture of receiving, which brings us lastly to wisdom's posture. 
How do we get into that posture of receiving? Wisdom is a person, a proficiency. And it's got this posture. Verse 7 tells us what that posture is. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It says, if you would be wise, you must take on this posture of fearing the Lord. This posture of of fearing the Lord, it's it's a central and crucial theme in all of the wisdom literature, Proverbs not accepted. 20 times in Proverbs is the fear of the Lord in some way commended. And, And not only that, but it's also discussed in each of the book's pivotal transitions. We'll see it addressed here in Proverbs 1 as well as in Proverbs 9, 10, and 31, acting as bookends for the whole of the book and to each section as well. And the reason for that is this, the fear of the Lord is central and essential to a life of wisdom, so much so that verse 7 tells us here that it's where wisdom begins. It's the starting point. It's the foundation to building a life of wisdom, just like you need to to, to learn your ABCs before you read, so you need to fear the Lord before you gain wisdom. Daniel Trier explains the latter half of this verse well, saying that fools despise instruction offered to them because, by implication, they do not take God seriously. Fools are foolish because they don't take God seriously. However, a wise person takes God seriously and therefore takes his instruction seriously. A wise person will recognize God as God and thus bow down to him in awe and reverence and worship and humility. In other words, he will bow down to God in fear. I know that some of us will inevitably struggle with this word fear here. Some of us are are left wondering, well, shouldn't we not fear God? 1 John 4.18 tells us that perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 18. And that kind of fear is, is what we might call a dread of punishment. And indeed, Christians should certainly not fear God in that sense. For those of us in Christ, Christ has taken all the punishment we deserve on the cross. He's absorbed every last drop of the judgment of God and all the penalty for our sin. That means that there is therefore nothing left over for those of us in Christ. We are free. Friend, if you have repented and trusted in Christ, you need not dread any punishment at all. Christ has taken it all for you on his cross. So you should not fear the Lord in that sense. And yet there's another kind of fear we might describe as being in a state of overwhelming awe at the greatness and goodness and grandeur of another. And certainly that kind of fear will inevitably result in a dread of doing anything that might displease or dishonor that person. When you're you're in a state of overwhelming awe toward God, toward his greatness and goodness and grandeur, you, you dread the thought of doing anything to dishonor him. When you find God to be the most valuable, the most glorious, 
when you find him to be the most beautiful, the most holy, the most precious, the most excellent, when you delight as him, as, as, as being the most just and good and righteous and pure and wise in all of his excellent greatness, when you're overwhelmed with a sense of holy awe at the Lord of all heaven and earth, you don't want to dishonor him. You want to honor him and glorify him and revere him. You want him to be the most central and ultimate and preeminent thing in your whole life. And that's the kind of fear that we're called to here in Proverbs 1.7. How does that relate to a life of, of wisdom? When you fear God in that sense, guys, everything else begins to, to come into its proper place and perspective in life. It's kind of like trying to find a, a, a focal point when you're taking a picture. You're taking a picture with your phone. Say you're, you know, you're at like a coffee shop with your friend. And, and there's lots of things around. There's tables and chairs and other people. There's coffee mugs and coffee machines and art on the walls and all sorts of things surrounding you. And there's a lot of movement. And when you go take a picture, it's trying to figure out what to focus on. And so you just kind of tap your finger on your friend's face, on your screen. And it, it narrows in, it focuses, and it makes your friend's face utterly clear. And when that happens, everything else around comes into proper perspective and focus as well. It, everything else comes into its own proper clarity. Fearing the Lord is kind of like that. When you fear Him, everything else comes into proper focus in life. And you thereby are prepared to approach all of life in the way that it ought to be approached. That posture prepares you to face everything else in life properly. And Daniel Estes puts it this way. He says, the fear of Yahweh produces a new way of looking at all of life. For it sees each moment as the Lord's time. Each relationship as the Lord's opportunity. Each duty as the Lord's command. Each blessing as the Lord's gift. This fear of Yahweh orients a person to the kind of moral life that corresponds to the Creator's values. As Yahweh is just in his character and conduct, so his justice becomes the standard for measuring right and wrong in the realm of human behavior. The fear of Yahweh represents the desire to please him in all things by respecting the divine order he has instructed in the world. See, that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we want to fear the Lord. We want to do that. And that just begs the question, how do we come to fear the Lord? And, and not only that, but how do we grow in fearing the Lord? How do we come to fear the Lord so that we can begin to be wise in the first place? And how do we grow in fearing the Lord so that we can become more and more wise? Well, friends, if you want to fear God, I would say this, look at the Christ. Look at the Christ. Look ultimately, not ultimately, at Solomon, the son of David, but look at the Lord Jesus, David's son and David's Lord. 
Look at his wisdom. Look at his power. Look at his beauty and excellence and goodness and grace. And look most principally at his saving work on the cross. Michael Reeves once said that the cross is a uniquely fertile soil for the fear of God. The cross is a uniquely fertile soil for the fear of God. The cross of Christ is the supreme place we ought to look if we want to grow in a sense of overwhelming awe at the glory and goodness and grandeur of God. The Bible, we read Psalm 111 earlier. It'll tell us to look at, at, at many places if we want to grow in fearing the Lord. In some places it might tell us to look at the, the excellence and splendor of God's creation. It might tell us at times to look at his providence and provision. It might tell us to look at all of his various works through redemptive history, through which he's blessed his people. But the cross of Christ is that work which outshines them all. The cross of Christ reveals God's glory and his splendor and excellence and holiness and love like no other work does. In it, we see a God who is so holy and just and pure that a punishment as dreadful as the cross would be required to pay for the heinousness of our sin. And yet in the cross, we see a God who loves us so much, a God who is so kind, a God who is so gracious and generous that he would make him sacrifice himself for us and for the heinousness of our sin. In the cross, we see God's grace and wrath, his kindness and holiness, his love and judgment, all being perfectly satisfied in the work of Jesus Christ, revealing perfect wisdom that astounds us and thus beckons and demands our fear. John Brown once wrote that nothing is so well fitted to put the fear of God, which will preserve men from offending him, into the heart as an enlightened view of the cross of Christ. There shines spotless holiness, inflexible justice, incomprehensible wisdom, omnipotent power, holy love, Nowhere does justice appear so awesome, mercy so amiable, or wisdom so profound, and thus nowhere else do we find such cause to fear our God. Friends, when you see the cross with such clarity, you see God with more clarity. And when you see God with more clarity, you will see everything else in life with more clarity, and then you will begin to be wise. He becomes your focal point. Everything else in life becomes all the more clear. You you can't help but become reoriented to a kind of life that revolves around your father's values and wills, and you become wise. Friends, all who would be wise must begin here with wisdom's person, proficiency, and posture. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, we pray that you would seal this word upon our hearts. We pray that this gospel that we've heard would also strengthen us through our communion with Christ so that we are then prepared to go out into this world and live lives of wisdom and understanding and virtue so that we might represent him well. We pray all this in Jesus' name.